Hello, everybody, and welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the comics podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics into conversation. I am Anna Papard, a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University, and I'm going to be our moderator for this month, in which we're going to be talking about two sci-fi, fantasy, saga, long-running indie comics in Linda Medley's Castle Waiting, which we're going to read the first volume of, and Carla Speed McNeil's Finder Volume 1, Sin Eater. We're also going to have a review of an academic book, as we usually do. This month, it's going to be Farah Mendelssohn's Rhetorics of Fantasy. Without further ado, let's get going. So I've already introduced myself, but I will introduce our usual panelists that we have today. First, to my right, I've got... Michael Hancock. I am a game scholar with interest in general pop culture and a very long-running interest in comics. And to my left, I've got... Andrew DeMann. I have an interest in comics scholarship. So as usual, we're going to introduce our text that we're going to be comparing this week, starting with Michael introducing us to Castle Waiting. Castle Waiting is a comic series written and drawn by Linda Medley. Medley began the series in 1996 with a grant from the Zarek Foundation and self-published through Oleo Press, and has subsequently published the series under Jeff Smith's cartoon books and, fant- and Fantagraphics, with some fairly lengthy hiatuses hiati? between its first publication and the most recent issues in 2013. Before she started the series, Medley worked in comics as a penciler on DC titles and colorist for image titles. In 1998, she received two Eisners for the series, talent deserving of wider recognition and best new series. Today we're looking at the first volume, with a particular emphasis on the first 12 chapters. It's a little hard to describe the main action of the series, largely because using the word action to describe Castle Waiting in any way feels like a step in the wrong direction. Rather, it's a gentle revisiting of established fairy tales, beginning with the history of the castle, then jumping forward to its newest residence. The first three chapters are essentially a retelling of Sleeping Beauty, setting up the idea that the titular castle is a space and the people left behind after the princess is reawakened and leaves with her prince. From there, we follow Jane, our pregnant protagonist, who flees to the castle as a place of refuge and finds a place for herself and her child among its eccentric residents. We meet such characters as Rackham, the castle's avian steward, Sir Chess, the equine knight-in-residence, and the irreverent sister-priest. Her origin story concerning the hirsute order Celestine makes up the tale and the volume. Castle Waiting is an exceptionally apt title for the series. It refers to the way the castle awaits the return of its fled royalty, but also fits quite well for the book's pace. It moves around almost languishly between the past and present day, slowly rounding out its cast of characters and adding more as we dip into the backstories of the castle, of Jane, and of others. It's a pace that may frustrate some readers, anyone who wants immediate answers to such issues as the father of Jane's child or the reason of her flight will be disappointed. It's perhaps even a greater frustration when considered in light of the series' original publication schedule, as the issues comprising the volume originally came out over the course of ten years. The counter-argument is that the meandering plot and slow pace are part of the book's charm, preserving in a way the timeless nature of a castle frozen in time from the original Sleeping Beauty story. A third and equally significant part of that charm is Medley's art, which tends somewhat towards the cartoonish, but is varied enough to support the book's massive cast and their many changing moods. Finally, the cartoonish art is well accompanied by a lightly comic tone, from dim-witted devils to the occasional sly witticism. It's not breakneck zaniness, but Medley demonstrates a good grasp of comedy timing in her breakdown and dialogue. Castle Waiting is not a book I recommend for everyone. This isn't the perfect fantasy for Game of Thrones fans. But as a fantasy book that's not afraid to wander around and take its time, I found it a story worth slowing down for. And now, Andrew will introduce Finder. Finder is hard to describe. First published in 1996, it's an expansive future fantasy. Maybe SF, it's often referred to as SF, but it doesn't really have a lot of science in it. Uh, It's a series written and drawn and frequently self-published by Carla Speed McNeil, though it seems to have found a solid home with Dark Horse for the time being. It tells the story of Jaeger Ayers, a roguish character in the Han Solo mold, who has a unique ability to travel through a limitless number of social groups within a dystopian future, whilst serving as an analogue for contemporary indigenous cultures. 
It is through this lens that readers are made to explore a far future world of clan conflicts, resource competition, relationship drama, and dark secrets. McNeil's world building offers ample opportunity for commentary on our own social and political structures, while her focus on characters and relationships displays the kind of nuance and subtlety that has more in common with Gabriel Garcia Marquez than with Stan Lee. This comparison is relevant in the sense that, just as Marquez has claimed that he writes all his characters to behave like eight-year-olds, Jaeger himself is largely an id-driven personality with a natural tendency to upset the status quo. This destructive nature tends to generate the plot of the story and also establishes a dominant theme in the book, the value of an agent of chaos. In this sense, Jaeger actually compares quite nicely to more mainstream comics characters such as Loki at Marvel or perhaps Lobo at DC. As much as Jaeger dominates the book, McNeil is careful to populate her world with engaging side characters, sympathetic villains, and complex conflicts that do not always offer the hope for simple resolutions. This commitment to complexity may be a big reason why Finder has developed a cult following of passionate readers instead of a more populist and profitable readership. It's a polarizing series that wears its uniqueness on its sun-bleached sleeves. As such, it's something of a meal for an academic discussion such as ours. Thank you, both of you, for those fabulous introductions. Um, to get our conversation going today, there's so many things that we could talk about with both texts, but I thought it might be best to get us started with, Michael actually chose this pairing, so he's a little bit on the spot for this <laughs> question, but why are we comparing these particular two texts? What points of sort of relevance do they have to each other? That is a very good question, and one that I have been asking myself a lot lately. <laughs> the most the simplest and most cheating cheat of an answer i think is that i read them around the same time uh, but i think they have a lot in common in terms that these are both works by solo female creators both self-published mm -hmm. both collected over a longer period of time than is typical and both collected in absolutely massive volumes yeah. uh, mm. and, and yet both feature stories that don't really come to any resolution despite mm -hmm. the massive page length or maybe even because of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that sense, they feel of a similar mold to me. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Would you agree, Andrew? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot that we can do with that. Um, I, I just want to clarify that I was about 100 pages into Finder and deeply resentful of Michael <laughs> for assigning it. Um, it's, it's one of those books that, I mean, Mark Twain has this famous quote that a great work of literature is a book that everyone wants to have read, but nobody wants to read. <laughs> I feel that way about Finder. I was really just, just laboring to get through it. And then as I told Michael before, I now look back at it very fondly. Uh, like there's a lot and I'm still thinking about that. And I had the same response to it. Yeah. I absolutely hated it until pretty much, uh, the later sections that we'll be talking about less. Yeah, and I should also add that Michael has recommended more great comics to me than any other human being on this Aww. planet. So he has like complete marker. If he says read a book, I'll go read the book. Well, maybe we could transition from that into getting into some specifics with both texts approach to world building, serialized storytelling, long form storytelling, since that is one of the things that ties them together perhaps most closely. How does each text approach its world building? I mean, I think I was complaining before the pod that I'm like, it almost seems in Finder like it isn't world building because I don't know how all these things work together. <laughs> but there's certainly so many creative ideas thrown around in it, which is a form of world building. And Well, can I start with a question for Michael? Yeah. Do, do you think sure. that castle waiting is pastiche? Like, do you look at it as building their world out of all these other existing pieces? Yeah, that's a good question. I think... It certainly starts out that way, uh, that the first three chapters are almost a detriment to it, uh, that it is about a group of characters who, for the most part, are not what the story is about, and it is very mm -hmm. firmly rooted in the Sleeping Beauty connection, mm -hmm. that the rest of the book does touch on a very wide variety of fairy tales, but never to the same depth and never to as faithfully as to the original form. It's more of a passing thing that uh, Jane visits a three piglets that uh, run an inn together that's called the Wolf's Head and features a prominently 
wolf skull on it. <laughs> that's like, oh, you get the end <laughs> of that story without getting any more into that. And that's a little more on how it deals with those fairy tale connections later on. Mm-hmm. Well, would you say that the fairy tale connections are important to the book in terms of getting back to that question of world building? Are they an important part of its world building? Or is it almost like a bait and switch? You know, it's almost promising mm-hmm. that there's going to be a significance there, but it's always deferring it. I think there's a little bit of a bait and switch, especially like with that beginning, that it feels like it is so strongly hearkening, like we are going to take this fairy tale as a premise and build on that fairy tale. It is not building on that fairy tale. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a resonance there that works that it feels as I kind of as I alluded to in the introduction, it creates a sense of the almost timelessness of a fairy tale to me. Hmm. And I think that resonance works in bringing it in piecemeal here and there. Was there almost sort of a, I don't know what I want to call that, I almost want to call that sort of a a fan fiction version of fairy tales, where it's sort of, it's living inside the moments or the parts of that world that aren't the parts that we usually get focused Mm -hmm. on in the stories that this is sort of based around? Well, it, it maybe has a resonance with a book that will come out a little later, uh, Bill Willingham's Fables in that way. Except it's not relying... I mean, Fables relies pretty heavily on the fact that these aren't your granddaddy's fairy tales. And this is almost more... This is a fairy tale that could have happened alongside these other ones. Yeah, I mean... Without actually happening. Well, I mean, what's (laughs) absent, too, is some of the moralizing, the more heavy moralizing that we would obviously get in a more traditional fairy tale. And yet, Mm -hmm. I agree that I kept expecting it to be sort of, you know, some sort of Angela Carter-like radical reframing Mm -hmm. of the fairy tales, but I don't, I agree that it isn't isn't that. (laughs) I kept expecting that, that, but it wasn't that. It's far too happy, calm, safe of a world for that, despite the hints of darkness, which which we'll probably talk about a little bit. Yeah, the, the castle is very much the refuge that... Uh, Jane hopes it to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked about some of the frustrations of of Finder already. I mean, does it have a coherent approach to world building or is it throwing a lot of ideas out there? Do you have a sense, maybe, on a concrete level, that Carlos (laughs) Speed McNeil has an idea of where this story is going? Or do you think it's evolving? It's it's pretty bananas. I I do think it evolves. I I think one of the issues is that we're studying the first volume. Yeah. And I think she's kind of... If we were... The natural comparison for me is um, um, to Love and Rockets, yeah. um, mm. which if you read the first few volumes yeah. of, they are all over the place. It, it, it's almost like an anthology title, like a, like a heavy metal or um, um, possibly even a 2000 AD. And then they find their world and they find their characters and they start to sort of flesh it out. Um, and I, I think we can see McNeil doing that even within the first two volumes. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's meant to be a, this is an everything world beyond your imagination. All these cultural pieces brought together in a, a really distant future. Um, but over the course of the series, it starts to become a, a more coherent world uh, and not coincidentally, a more cohesive world. Um, so I, I think it's sort of a, an artist finding the world they want to create um, along the way. In terms of sort of the appeal or the frustrations of that kind of approach to storytelling, would you say that for people who really enjoy this series, that's a point of connection? I can see there being something where you're sort of identifying with the author exploring this world and developing this world, and that's right. actually one of the reasons why people who like it do like it as much as they do, whereas to other people, I did find this a very frustrating series as well, because I'm sort of more of a fan of, you know, tighter storytelling, I would say, you know, I'm sort of don't like prestige TV a lot of the time because I don't like that open-ended storytelling. I like sort of traditional, well-rounded start, middle, end sort of television shows. So Finder was frustrating to me on a lot of levels, but... This isn't... um, I don't know. What I like about both of these books is that they have, I mean, maybe more so Castle Waiting, a almost soap opera element to them. Yeah. Where it's stories where you introduce a cast of characters and you develop them a little bit and... Maybe you'll get to the end of a storyline. Maybe the storyline will be kept up in the air forever. And these are characters within this world rather than let us bring them to a conclusion or a catharsis. Well, sort of of each issue or episode of the comic is more like we're spending some more time in this world rather than each issue is a discrete story. Mm -hmm. Of course, where the metaphor falls totally apart is that publishing-wise, this was the opposite 
of a soap opera. It's not something that you revisit a little every day. It's something that gets spread out over the course of years and decades. And I'm making all sorts of presumptions, but my guess would be that if this, if either of these books were published on, let's do a monthly schedule, but on a long-term basis, there would have been more resolution that there is more yeah. of a driving need. Editorial would have forced them to create yeah. resolution. No, I, I think we're, we're sort of stepping on a, a bigger debate in the arts in general, which is that this notion that one of the things that fiction gives us is this fantasy of resolution. The idea that things wrap up nicely and we move on to the next adventure and life doesn't work that way. So the question is, is it noble for reflecting reality um, or is it not doing what we expect fiction to do and what we might even you know, culturally need fiction to do? Well, honestly, I think uh, one of the reasons that this kind of speaks to me isn't anything to do with reality, but my love of video games, mm. that oh, okay. I play a lot of Japanese role-playing games and open-world games where the appeal is supposed to be, oh, you will play this forever. You will spend a hundred hours in yeah. this world. There is nothing in particular you have to do here, less for the JRPG, more for the open world, but you have all the time you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did... I mean, I'm not a huge games person, but I mean, I definitely got the sensory in Castle Waiting. It reminded me a lot of playing King's Quest games and that type of thing <laughs> growing up, where I did spend just... I didn't even care about finishing the game that much. I just sort of went around and talked to all the people again and again, and that's sort of what Castle Waiting feels like. It feels like spending time in a game or in a world without the expectation of resolution. Mm -hmm. Although as an adult, because I used to play those games as a kid more, um, I found that frustrating. But I like it what you're bringing up, Andrew, about what should our expectations be of, of something leading to resolution. And I, I kept thinking about, well, why am I so frustrated with these texts, whereas superhero comics don't really bother me that way? Mm -hmm. To me, I like a balance between the single issue should be about something and come to a certain type of resolution, but then, you know, aspects of the larger story still continue. I like... I personally kind of prefer that approach to serialized storytelling, whereas I had a hard time getting a handle on how you could possibly follow something like Castle Waiting, where you're maybe waiting like oh. six months between installments of it, and then nothing much happens. Well, Andrew, as our resident Claremont <laughs> expert, you are very well versed in storylines that take a long time to resolve. Is there any comparison there? Yeah, I, I think... Like, even again, if we track this as sort of like a cultural responsibility thing, we can clearly see when we talk about things like binge-watching television yeah. that our society is definitely really interested in longer-form narrative uh, at this point in time. And again, spending so much time in the world and maybe even grieving when the resolution comes. Right? Like, we're, we're recording this right now. Game of Thrones' final season comes out in April. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting cultural touchstone. Uh, and, and again, sort of the, the, the legacy of long-form storytelling right now. I think it's different. I, I, coming back to what Anna was saying, it's a subjective thing. It's a personal yeah. preference kind of thing. And I do agree with that. When I'm complaining about it, I'm not complaining about it because I think one thing is better than the other. I think it's just an interesting thought experiment about why a certain form of storytelling appeals to one person versus not appealing to another person. I'm kind of getting at that through some mm -hmm. personal complaints. Yeah, well, what do you want from your art? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be different. I don't think anyone in the room is saying that what McNeil has accomplished isn't amazing. But I think we all recognize that it yeah. probably doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Uh, this is a polarizing text. Um, and, and I think a lot of that does come down to that fundamental relationship between art and reality. So, I mean, it's fun to get to talk about that on our comics podcast. It is. It is. I want to push you guys a little bit, though, on it. To Do we have any kind of standards, though, in terms of, you know, what makes a coherent story or not? Because I did find myself asking myself that question with Finder, especially, but Castle Waiting, too, to mm -hmm. a certain extent, because pacing, I would say, is a bit of an issue in that text, just to the extent that it moves quickly and slowly, and it's not really consistent in a way that I thought was necessarily impactful or meaningful in the same in the way that it could have been. I, I can almost speak more to Finder in this regard, because the parts of Finder that we read, Sin Eater, are a an arc that seems to be building towards some sort of confrontation yeah. between the family that uh, Jaeger involves himself with and we kind of get that confrontation and we don't and then instead of an actual resolution to that it let's see what happens five years afterwards 
And that's a big hump to get over storytelling-wise and expectation-wise. I guess I just, yeah, I kept finding myself worrying with myself of like, this is a radical postmodern narrative that's like breaking everything we know about narratives and that's what's so good about it versus being like, maybe the author doesn't know where this story is going and we're just getting more installments of it and more ideas that are just building on other ideas without Mm -hmm. resolution. And I am... Two minds about it. I'm not sure. So I, I, I weirdly, like, I completely see what you're saying. I, I weirdly take a lot of faith in the author, just in her control of pacing. That's fine. Like she is so patient. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what I mean? And given the amount of detail work in her yeah. illustration style, uh, I kind of feel like she had to have had a plan. So I'm like, this yeah. is going somewhere. I'm constantly telling myself this is going yeah. somewhere. And sometimes there's payoff for that. But as you're saying, like sometimes there's there's not. But I think I would have enjoyed it more if I didn't keep saying it was going somewhere. <laughs> no, I, I think it's sort of wearing novelty as its flag. Um, and I mean, it's these are a pair of 90s indie comics. And in that sense, like... Maybe that some of that is the appeal, that these are works of their time that offered something very different from what the rest yeah. of the industry was I, I was thinking that a lot while I was reading these as well, that like a huge part of the appeal might be the imaginativeness, the innovation of them, which is reflected in that approach to storytelling too. You know, an outside-the-box approach to storytelling might have very much appealed to people who were looking for something beyond the traditional fare at that time. Yeah, I and mean, if we start talking about influence, we could ask the question whether or not these are avant-garde texts. Yeah. Uh, that are, you know, I mean, their greater contribution to comics is the people they're influencing who are able to make more mainstream things out of their ideas, uh, which is a kind of cannibalistic notion. Uh, it's the kind of thing that um, um, Ginsburg talks about in Howl. It's really cruel, uh, the way that we harvest our authors. Um, but I mean, I had not heard of Finder when Michael proposed it. And in researching it, I'm finding this insane, you know, cult following. Well, see, I've heard of it in terms of being a thing that inspired other things, you know, because there has been a big resurgence, you know, say, what, in the last 10 decades of sci-fi genre comics? Mm. And I've seen it brought up a lot as a progenitor of that. It's an interesting comic, and I haven't done the research to be able to say how this influenced it, but it made the move to webcomic for a portion. I don't know when that happened in the series or how that affected pacing or anything, but that is a really interesting... Like, someone who has literally done the shift from independent comic to webcomic is hugely interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. Since we're talking about, you know, I tried to get a start starting a world building and we got a little bit complaints, especially on my part, but let's talk about some of what's actually going on in these respective texts. Maybe starting with Finder, but we could also talk about Castle Waiting. What is kind of the approach to fantasy, or we brought up that maybe Finder is a sci-fi text as well. Like, What are some of, just for our readers that haven't read either one, what are some of the fantastical elements of Finder? How would you describe this world? What's the texture of this world? Who exists in this world? Um, well, it, we're, we're dealing with dystopia. It, it's a sort of post-apocalyptic world where humanity is um, under the dome, so to speak, uh, in large urban centers. Um, and they have a fairly uh, aggressive clan system in place. Um, if we want a nice comparison, it actually compares to a text that we worked with earlier in the form of Extremity. Uh, there's a little bit eh, of overlap there, not a ton. Um, and I, I think in particular, uh, McNeil has often talked about this text as a, an Aboriginal text or an Indigenous yeah, text. Yeah. Uh, and that comes in the form of Jaeger, who is an outsider, an outsider who can live in this kind of wasteland and then come into the urban environment for a little bit, where he's subjected to all kinds of um, institutional and um, cultural racism uh, as a result of that. Uh, his fantastic elements, uh, sometimes he can do sort of magic-y things, and it, it's, it's a little problematic because that does associate with his indigeneity, uh, which falls into the trope of the magical Indian, um, which is problematic, but I mean, we spend so much time in his eyes and he's yeah. the focal character that I think we evade that issue yeah. a little bit. Well, what are some of the fantastical elements that we have at play in Castle Waiting? Similar or different? Mm-hmm. In Castle Waiting... We have several human-animal hybrids who are just kind of accepted as members of society. Uh, We have our birdman, our horseman, 
and probably one or two other animal hybrids I'm glossing over. Uh, we have a golden egg-laying hen who provides the castle's finances. Um, and we have maybe a Beauty and the Beast scenario going on with Jane's son. Or maybe, as some of the castle-waiting people put it, he is just a really ugly kid. Maybe a way to frame the difference between the two texts is that Finder is doing the science fiction thing where its innovations are about taking modern technologies and accelerating them to the point where we can look at them from a bit of estrangement. Whereas I think whatever sort of magic that Castle Waiting is bringing in, it's about familiarizing ourselves with it. It's taking them and making them ordinary. Hmm. No, I, I can I can kind of see that. There's there's some pretty good extrapolation in Finder where, again, it seems like the far out things that we're seeing within the universe are meant to trail back to trajectories of current things that exist in our world. Right. And, and then that's a, where our social there's commentary There's a lot of media is criticism. From. Yeah. For sure. Media, politics especially, there's a whole ton in there. And um, racial relations, um, and even I think to some degree, um, genetics. Well, you brought up the element of Finder where it's a critique in some sense of some aspects of society or culture. In what sense do you think it's functioning, like on that level? Because I'd be interested in discussing that and then relating that back to Castle Waiting. And is Castle Waiting a critique? And if it is, of what? Um, um, I think that's an interesting component in terms of um, where the timelessness is and where the sort of pointed social commentary is. Mm -hmm. I think in the case of Finder, it is at its core a character drama that yeah. this story could be told ridiculously easily in a contemporary atmosphere and setting. Yeah. Um, so it seems like the the few far future backdrop and all the social commentary that emerges from the things that are you know within this this world are side pieces. Uh, some of them have thematic resonance with the character drama um, very clearly, uh, and some of them don't. Uh, they're just kind of there laying seeds for, for future work. Again, coming back to our discussion of this long-form storytelling. Uh, and as many, many people have said, the first volume of Finder is the hardest to read. Uh, the payoff comes later. Yeah. Uh, so you're just kind of in there for the long haul. But in general, as I said, I, I think what we're looking at in Sin Eater is a, a really almost by the books, it, it feels almost like a play to me. Mm -hmm. um, character melodrama. What about critiques of things, though, like racial identity? I mean, you brought up a few of the things about indigeneity. I mean, we have some very deliberate things right at the beginning of the volume where he's selling in the market and he has a the Jaeger character has a speech about what, you know, like, I'm not Indian enough for you. Yeah. And so we do have some kind of very deliberate social commentary present, though. Would you say that that was sort of an exception in the early issues and it kind of gets more diffuse after that? Or do you see that kind of continuing? I think it comes back. It has a pretty continuous presence, even if it's not the main driving force behind the plot. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, for example, in Senator, we learn about Jaeger's background and he has a very um, um, familiar journey mm -hmm. uh, where he is um, from a, a broken home. Uh, he gets conscripted into the army after some time in prison, after some juvenile delinquency. Uh, it, it really seems like she's, she's very directly commenting on our treatment of indigenous peoples in North yeah. American culture there. Yeah. Um, but again, and doesn't really intersect very strongly with um, the main piece, other than that's sort of how he meets Brig and where he forms um, a loyalty to him. That, uh, that could be partly of where it subverts the magical Indian trope a little bit too, though. Yeah, again, anytime I, I think Jaeger gets agency, and, and the text gives him a lot of agency, anytime you see that, that's where you start to move beyond the trope. And yeah. the later story, uh, King of Cats, I think deals with this like pretty excellently that it looks at the aboriginal tribes who have been called into the disneyland equivalent to basically perform in indigenousness and it routinely mocks that approach mm -hmm. in, a, in a pretty good way i think So we've been talking a little bit already about representations of diversity in these comics, a little bit more so with Finder than Castle Waiting. One of the aspects of that is the approach to representations of sex and gender in these texts. And we certainly have a lot of interesting things in that regard going on in Finder, and I would say some interesting things going on in Castle Waiting as well, though of a different, well, similar and different type. But let's start with Finder. Um, what are some of the interesting aspects about the approach to, in terms of something like the human-animal hybridity and what that suggests about the world that's being built here? 
Yeah, I, I think the world that's being built still has um, a tremendous amount of patriarchy to it. Yeah. Um, maybe more so than, than ours, we could argue. It, it's one of those extrapolations, almost um, that, that handmaid's tale-like notion that the gains of feminism are very much dependent upon resource availability. Uh, and here we have a, um, a future that doesn't have a lot of resources and has intense competition for them. And women's roles are, are not super strong. And that's sort of a trope of a lot of dystopian fiction and apocalypse yeah. fiction. And Very much so. Finder, at least in terms of the two main clans of the city that we see, ties racial identity to gender pretty tightly. Mm-hmm. That uh, we have two very different cultures in terms of their approach to gender. Andrew, you may be better to speak on that than me. Well, okay, so, so one of the things that I would argue for Finder, and this is very subjective, it is that I think that they're kind of lumping a lot of different forms of diversity mm-hmm. into like one metaphor okay. in ways that I don't think are simplistic. Like I, I don't think they're trying to make it easier. I, I think they're in some ways making it more complicated. So for example, you have um, the different clans, which are based mm-hmm. on genetic bloodlines, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. Those map as race. Um, but so too do, in some cases, different species, mm-hmm. uh, which map as race, but also have aspects of gender to them in the sense that we have like an all-female lion tribe. Uh, and the males of that line are literally animals. Yeah. Or more animalistic. Yeah, and uh, they're pets, really. Yeah. Uh, is the way to approach it, I think. And then um, lumped into that as well is this metaphor on class distinctions uh, in terms of how these different clans have and distribute wealth uh, and how they um, sort of um, interact on these multiple levels of race, gender, class, um, and um, religion is in there as well. Uh, so all these differences become kind of a, a weird hodgepodge. To me, the ultimate message of that is that, that any difference is just a difference. Um, so it's kind of commenting on diversity as sort of it's all the same in a really kind of interesting way, but at the same time, when it isolates specific ones, such as the relationship between Brig and Emma and the girls, yeah. um, that's where it starts to form a more specific commentary. So it, it's definitely casting a wide net, um, but it has its moments in terms of when it starts to really fixate and focus on one or the other. And because it casts that wide net, I think it has room to choose which one it wants to engage with in any given scene, um, which is, I think, really useful um, um, for McNeil in terms of um, allowing her to explore different forms of symbolism. Well, maybe let's get more specific about some of the specific metaphors or stories going on within here. So Emma, right, comes from the clan where all of the members of the clan are female, Correct. right? Ex- expresses, yeah, feminine. Yeah, it, yeah, that would be a better way of putting that. What's going on there with the use of kind of that trope? We get some interesting stuff too with Lynn. Yeah, with <laughs> the son who is being raised as a daughter. What did you make of kind of that storyline? How did you think that that was handled? Oh, man, that, that, that's a tough one, right? In terms, it's a of... very complicated storyline. I thought it was actually one of the things I liked best about and this volume. Lynn gets a lot more attention in terms of. I think. I think this is true. Uh, in the second volume, Lynn's dual identity and that nature gets a lot more addressing. So, just mm-hmm. to explain for the listeners, so Lynn is one of the daughters of the main family that this centers on, who is a son biologically, um, but is raised as a daughter because the mother comes from a clan where everyone, as Michael said, presents as female, identifies as feminine. Against Lynn's will, Lynn yeah. does not want and, to be gendered female. And yeah. maybe. Uh, Brigham isn't on board with that either, although Brigham isn't on board with a lot of the parenting decisions. So Brigham and Emma have a family. They're from opposite clans who wouldn't normally intermarry. We don't get the full story behind why they got together in this particular volume. causes a lot of the breakdown between them eventually. Yeah. Yeah, so we do have kind of a conflict of stereotypical masculinity versus femininity kind of going on in this relationship, which mm-hmm. has an abuse narrative as well. Yep. Comparing representations of domestic abuse might be something we want to talk about in both of these texts, but sticking with the character of Lynn, like, yeah, what did you make of that storyline, Andrew? Did you feel that that dynamic was was handled well? I mean, one of the things we've talked about in previous episodes was fantasy can sometimes be problematic in terms of, by applying fantasy metaphors to real-life situations, like something... This could be related to trans identity in various ways. Does that enhance the story or does that hurt the story? I think it's it's almost a non-factor to the story. Okay. I, I think it's, again, one of the more universal components. Lynn's yeah. story could 
pretty easily be told yeah. uh, from a contemporary perspective. Yeah. What I like about it in terms of its handling is that it's something that has influenced Lynn profoundly, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. the gender identity issue. Um, but it doesn't seem to fall into any like 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 tropes uh, yeah. of someone who is um, problematically gendered. I guess mm-hmm. is the easiest way to describe it. it. It seems like Lynn's story is a personal story. We could argue it maybe gets a little again kind of Freudian in the desire to kill the father yeah. uh, <laughs> in order to, to I don't know avenge being gendered that way. Um, but even that, I think you'd be stretching to read it that way. So I, I kind of like that it portrays gender and gender identity and being forced into a gender identity all as really intense personal experiences without necessarily moralizing uh, on what that should or should not mean. Well, I mean, it moralizes, though, on the parents kind of doing this to Lynn, though, does it not? I mean, even just in the sense of showing Lynn's intense trauma at this I choice. Think- I think one of the strands is that how much the parents are... I think it, it gets wrapped up in how all three of the children are being profoundly affected and ultimately harmed yeah, by their yeah, parents. Okay. I mean, it's in different ways that yeah, the true. eldest is cracking a bit under the pressure of yeah. having to step up to the responsibilities their parents are not meeting. Yeah. And Marcy goes through some pretty intense, uh, almost disassociation. Yep. I mean, I'll, I'll say for me, you know, the elements of it being a trans narrative, I found effective. I mean, it is using sort of the fantasy conceit of these different tribes sort of having different ideas about gender to tell a story about the harm that it does cause to be forced to live as a gender that you don't identify with, which yeah. is a good story to tell. I think it opens a lot of conversations. And again, coming yeah. back to what I thought of. I mean, I can't, I, I don't know how the dates shake out, but the fact that this is a story in comics in the 90s is very like good. <laughs> uh, it, it was not something that was happening in mainstream comics, let's yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. what about that question of representations of domestic abuse in these comics? Because we have that coming up in both of them. Um, In Finder, that's sort of an overarching part of the story that um, Emma has run away from her husband due to some quite um, disturbing... Sorry? Jane. Oh, Jane. Oh, no, in Castle Waiting. Yeah. Oh, but, right. I'm sorry. I thought we were yeah. <laughs> so in both, so, in, so many characters today. Let's so just, many let's just read you that. So <laughs> in Castle in Castle Waiting, so in Castle Waiting, uh, we get Jane at the beginning of Volume One um, fleeing from what seems to be a domestic abuse situation in her story, although we never get the full details of it, which is maybe something we could talk about. But in Finder Two, we have Emma fleeing with her children from her abusive husband the details of which are sort of presented at various points, but they're still kind of sketchy because the narrative is kind of surreal and kind of back and forth. But um, did we feel that, well, I guess I'll answer that. Were these problematic representations of domestic abuse? Were these like useful representations? What did you kind of make of them? Maybe that's not a fair question. I think maybe a possible fault you could say to Castle Wing's approach is that it ultimately doesn't make a lot out of them that it's there's a moment in castle waiting where uh the first time someone new at least new to jane comes to the castle uh she responds fearfully to the stranger and like hides herself and that suggests a depth to her abuse that really isn't explored and it's almost dismissed as a kind of joke when we find out that it, oh no, it's just the horseman coming home. And isn't he weird and wacky and joining the group? Yeah, I feel I'm of two minds about the way it approaches it. I like the way it builds this alternative community and kind of does this thing where it does allow her to escape from that experience, you know, which is a very powerful thing. And I mean, in terms of castle waiting functioning as escapism that might be valuable i mean maybe that's part of it right Right. you know i mean there isn't anything necessarily wrong with escaping you know our world especially to hang out with some beloved friends which is what jane does and is what we do vicariously by reading this comic if if we're talking like big fantasy themes uh Tolkien says that's what fantasy is for, this kind of escapism. yeah yeah for sure i i think in finder i i I kind of like it 
Yeah. Like one of my complaints against depictions of domestic abuse in, in media is that usually the the abuser is just a transparent monster. And I, I find that that's a little bit um, undermining of the idea that women could fall in love with this abuser or men could fall in love with this abuser either. I, I want the character to be a little sympathetic to understand how their relationship yeah. worked in the first place. Because yeah. mm-hmm. um, I think that's, that's kind of how it, it, it has to work in reality. Um, so Brig is a horribly abusive person. He suffers from PTSD. Yeah. Uh, he, he's badly mentally unhinged and he might have been a better person earlier on. It's kind of hard to tell. So I, I think the story does a good job of showing this with complexity, but also showing the, the danger and the damage and the extent to which this entire family is living in terror of this yeah. guy. And at the same time, our protagonist leaves their house and then just goes and hangs out with him. Yeah. It, it, it's a really, I don't know, again, I, like I, it evades resolution. It's almost hard to analyze, it's, but it has a richness to it that I really like. Well, I feel like that segues quite well into a discussion of sexuality, especially in Finder, but potentially also in Castle Waiting. Um, the character of Jaeger has an interesting sexuality in relation to the family that he spends time with. Um, do you want to walk us through that a little bit, Andrew? Sure. What we're dealing uh, with there. <laughs> hard to define. Um, I don't know. I mean, he, he's bordering on pansexual um, in ways that are sometimes kind of sketchy. I've mentioned before, I find his relationship with um, Emma's daughters to be, or sorry, specifically Rachel, um, to be uncomfortable uh, in the way that that's handled sometimes. Um, he is very, very open in his expression of sexuality. It's certainly a major aspect of his character and a way that he specifically forms relationships with a lot of the characters in this book is on the basis of sexual attraction, one way or the other or both. Um, and I, I think that, again, lends itself to the archetype of like the roguish Han Solo-like character. But um, Han Solo is not as complex in his sexuality no. as well, Jaeger. I mean, you say... Han Solo, my go-to is Wolverine. Yeah, you mentioned that. We, well, yeah, we have a, a very hairy character who is both the loner and someone who seems to like almost compulsively form relationships with the people around him, uh, especially sexual relationships with female partners, yep. but also a father figure to other female partners. Uh, he has a military background a background with exoticized people uh, and a background where he was the subject of some sort of experiment. Also, he heals fast. (laughs) Well, one of the things that, I mean, partly I'm tempted to be like, yeah, the Jaeger character is Wolverine if he'd also explicitly tried to have a sexual relationship with Jubilee or Kitty Pride. Right. I mean, that's where we kind of get at some of the problematics of that. So just to be clear, so Jaeger is having a sexual relationship with the mother of the family and... At least a flirtation. Open to having a sexual relationship with the teenage daughter as well, quite explicitly. Yeah, he sings a song about, like, jail bait after he has an interaction mm-hmm. with her. And it's... he explicitly says, I will be with you when I'm done with her, if you would like. Uh... I mean, one of the things that I would throw out there, though, as it being less problematic than the example of if it had been Wolverine, is that Jaeger is drawn as, like, a female gaze character. Mm-hmm. Like, he is there to be looked at and gazed at and desired. He has come very highly on lists of the um, sexiest characters in comics. And, you know, I saw that. <laughs> he's sexy. Whereas Wolverine, to me, is not a female gaze character, usually, right. in that same sense. Mm-hmm. So I was willing to accept it a little <laughs> bit more on that level. Like, nothing feels non-consensual about what happens. Yeah, right. Which, nothing really happens with the teenage daughter. So... In that sense, I was willing to kind of accept it just as kind of like a complexity of this world and this relationship rather than just an exploitative problematic aspect of this text. Yeah, and I I think it maybe reflects a little bit the sort of 90s comics culture as well. You know what I mean? Coming out of that punk mentality from the alternative comics movement, um, which is uh, very um, androgynous and uh, very sexually overt. So he's part of a broader trend. And... In that sense, it's really easy, I think, to read his relationship to the family in Freudian, almost Oedipal terms, that he is both, like, he sees Brigham as a father figure, because he kind of saved him when he was trying to, and failing to fit into the army, Uh, but also he is replacing him, very literally, in his family. Except he doesn't want that job, which is the sort of horrifying switcheroo at the end. Uh, he, He can't stay. 
they all want him to. They're so desperate to have him stay. Yeah, and I would say where it becomes problematic, although I think that this is portrayed as problematic within the text, is, you know, the teenage daughter thinking of him as both a sexual object and and a father. That's where, you know, it's possibly coming across as not entirely consensual because she's not making a clear choice because there's an immaturity suggested there. Um, But I don't think that that's something that the text isn't conscious of. I think that that's sort of a difference between creator and characters kind Mm -hmm. of thing where she is portraying that as problematic. But it's not an inaccurate representation of teenage mentality. And in that sense, I don't think it's sexist necessarily. Just out of curiosity, where do you see that self-awareness in the text? In the deferment of it, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that it, I'm not sure if it does follow through in later volumes, I wouldn't be surprised if it does, but it's at least presented as not necessarily a good idea. Right. And I mean, even even Jaeger, I think, has some doubts about it, but that's projecting. I can't say that he I does. I mean, if nothing else, he seems like, oh, I can't be sleeping with both of them at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be a bad idea. <laughs> well, can I ask you guys about Jaeger as a character? I mean, I went back and forth about him. You brought up the Wolverine connection. I mean, one of the problems with that kind of anti-hero character in a lot of fiction is, are we supposed to identify and celebrate that character's anti-hero characteristics, or are we supposed to condemn them? I felt very unsure about that distinction right. is it a with tragic Jaeger, flaw kind of thing? because he's a sexy character. We just talked about how he's explicitly a sexy character, and so I am supposed to desire him. I, I think, he's drawn that way. <laughs> I think his playboy nature sort of folds into this um, this insecurity that defines him. Okay. And is ultimately the reason why he can't stay with them. So in that sense, I do think it, it's it's part of like a tragic flaw. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think you could read it the other way as well. His, he can't stay with them, but he desperately wants them to want him to. Yeah. And he is the main protagonist. We do get a lot more of his subjectivity, at least in this volume, than we do get of the other characters' subjectivity. Although I will say my probably my favorite part of the book is the last chapter or so that is all uh, Team Marcy's story. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess what just what struck me about Jaeger was just that if the text is saying that he's a bad guy, it's certainly making him very sexy while it's doing mm-hmm. that. And what is that doing for us as readers? Because is it dragging me in only to subvert my investment in that character later or not? Or is that just always unclear? I don't know. I, I think that's a... We have to give the author a lot of credit yeah to say that but yeah. i mean maybe she earns it like, like, yeah uh, he's he's a really complicated enigmatic character and i think that complexity maybe speaks to the accomplishment of the artist and therefore again they burned our trust so we just talked quite a bit about gender in Finder, but what about castle waiting? Because we have some interesting sort of gender stuff going on there as well. Take us through some of the interesting aspects of gender in that text. Well, the sort of core castle waiting text has, I would say, well, I haven't like worked out the numbers. I would say more or less an even amount of a gender balance, although Mm -hmm. I think the male characters are given a little more likable individuality uh, in the sense that the three ladies in waiting are very much like one character yeah the rest of the parts of the story we have at the beginning each of the fairies get like at least their own little moment so that's a lot of female characters at once and likewise one of the major stories we focus on is the sister pieces order which is basically an order of religiously devoted women who have some degree of facial hair. So there's a lot of female characters in that as well. I think where it falls in diversity is that despite having all these female characters, there aren't any queer voices in this, I don't think. Yeah, I found that a little bit of a silencing, just in terms of the bearded women storyline especially, like there was a strong suggestion of queerness between Sister Pierce. Ultimately, the text almost draws away from that to reinforce, oh no, she may be a nun, but Sister pieces into dudes. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I wasn't sure what to do with that. I was sort of, on the one hand, it's neat the way it's subverting our expectations there, you know, with her being sort of gender deviant by virtue of her working in a pub and growing a beard. And 
it plays with that giving her a degree of social mobility because she doesn't have to be part of the female economy, which I like that idea. But then, yeah, it's funny how it teases the queerness and steps away from that. Because again, yeah. on the one hand, that suggests that gender deviance and sexual deviance don't have to be linked, which is positive because that's an expression of diversity. And yet the fact that there's no queer characters noticeably in this text at all is a bit red flagged. And mm-hmm. all of the sexuality we do see is coached in these very safe terms that no one's going to do anything improper here and if you put that in combination with the lack of queerness that seems to imply queerness is unsafe which is not great well i mean what's the audience for either of these though like are these like (laughs) adult comics all ages comics i mean castle waiting strikes me as being very much all ages so I mean, the lack of sexuality, yeah. yeah. (laughs) so the lack of lack of sexuality there might not be that surprising in that context maybe that's a but the lack of queerness becomes that much more problematic if that's the reason because you know obviously that's problematic for all sorts of reasons but finder is definitely like teenage adult audience right yeah for sure yeah not just in terms of the the adult content but just the complexity of the relationship and also like like, oh yeah you're so cool how would we say that gender and sexuality intersect with i mean it kind of gets us back to our discussion of saga in a little bit in terms of we have a lot of representations of the diversity of this world through things like human-animal hybridity. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that an interesting thing to talk about with either of these texts? Is it just sort of part of the world? I mean, does the fact that Sir Chess is like a horse who is a man matter? Well, I, I think that speaks to some of the safety here that we were we are not going to touch on a, a potentiality for bestiality. <laughs> uh, even I could see Finder going there. Yes. It doesn't, I don't think, but... Yeah. <laughs> it, not the least surprising if it actually did. Yeah, no, I, I think in Finder, the um, um, anthropomorphism is a really good way to just, again, um, visually dramatize other forms of difference and diversity. Uh, it, it has that uh, capacity to call attention to the metaphors, which is useful. Whereas in Castle Waiting, I, th- I think part of the, the fantasy element is um, uh, what Tolkien referred to as right. communion with nature, right? And it, the animal people there like lend towards the kind of cartoon-ishness of it that, I mean, one of the more devoted jokes is the idea that the bird stork man lifts the baby up <laughs> at the sister's whim in order to imitate a stork. And like, that's a very gentle joke. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think, I guess animal hybridity more as a visual than almost yeah. anything else. I mean, I did find it... It really is. I did find it weird that in a text written and drawn by a woman that, you know, I could see appealing to, like, you know, a young female audience in Castle Waiting, there's, like, a sexy knight horse guy mm. who, like, is not really <laughs> sexualized because it keeps getting deferred because, you know, <laughs> if I was a young girl, I probably would want to see that happen. <laughs> Girls and horses, you know? It's an academic book I gotta write at some point. <laughs> I, I like to see the inverse of the centaur. That, like usually we get the ma- ma- yeah the horse part up top yeah. is that better or worse I'm not <laughs> sure yeah. in terms of race and castle waiting I think one of the more problematic scenes kind of uh, typifies its approach that gypsies enter this narrative at one point and are pretty unambiguously portrayed as villains in the sense that they are both horse thieves and this is a suggestion that they trade in uh, slavery and particularly baby slavery. (laughs) Uh, It's clearly drawing on an established history of fairy tales in this, but it's not being in any way critical of that, I'd say. Well, and that's a case, too, where, I mean, like, this fairy tale trope is blending into, like, gypsies, Roma people, or mm-hmm. real people that exist in the yeah. actual world with right. actual persecution. So, like, just using them as an unexamined trope within the story is definitely problematic. And it's not really something that gets subverted necessarily in that story. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's just brought up as they are these villainous characters, they are gypsies, they get defeated, and they move on. So we did some griping, mostly on my part, admittedly, at the beginning of this episode about, you know, some of the things that are challenging about the world building in these stories, to put it charitably. But if we do like spending time in these worlds, why do we like spending time in these worlds? 
And I have a bit of an answer for Castle Waiting on my own, but I want to hear what both of you guys think. What do you, what do you think, Andrew? If we enjoy spending time in the world of Finder, what do we enjoy about it? Because clearly it does appeal to a lot of people, even though it's more of a cult audience. It still has an intense appeal for the people that like it. Yeah, I mean, it's got that, that, that richness of the fantasy world mm-hmm. uh, alongside really strong character melodrama. Okay, um, yeah. As much as I like science fiction, as much as I love fantasy... For me, I always get really hooked on that sort of long-form character relationship kind of stuff unfolding piece by piece. I also have the, the sort of comics readership sadistic streak, which is one of the reasons I like X-Men, uh, <laughs> where you just, you just keep hurting your characters and making them suffer intensely and then hurt them some more. And I, I think Finder really embraces that yes. mentality. Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> so I, I find myself um, reading all Well, maybe just to like, like bookend the thing I said earlier where I was mad at Michael uh, when I was about 100 pages in. When I was 400 pages in and I finished what we were supposed to read for this podcast, I kept reading, uh, which is, I don't know, maybe testament to the spell that this this thing casts. Uh, We've we've touched on this, but I think one of the key appeals of both texts is something that's a key appeal to fantasy readers. That one of the things that I think distinguishes fantasy readers, even from sci-fi readers to an extent, is that the value of density. That any major fantasy writer you can name is also someone who tends to write series like, let's start with 10 volumes and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the appeal of both of these texts that, I mean, there's the, there's the joke, um, this food tastes terrible and the portions are so small. These portions are so big Yeah. (laughs) that even like the, I think both of these books have their qualities or quality to them, but almost quantity is a part of the appeal to a certain audience, that there is so much here that you can spend a lot of time with these characters. There were a lot of interruptions, if you were a longtime fan to both series, Mm -hmm. but now it's here. It is all here, and you can experience it at whatever pace you'd like. Well, it caters to like an obsessive mentality almost, yes. <laughs> both in terms of Which you know, you know how long the story fans. takes to unfold, and I mean the quantity too is the quantity of ideas with any mm-hmm. any particular story too, right? I mean we get some like really interesting aspect of the world brought up, and it might not get dealt with again for like five more years of comics, but that's part of that density, right? Right. What about Castle Waiting? Why do we like spending time in this world? Well, um, I mean, I think. Density applies there too, but mm-hmm. in terms of what Andrew was saying about melodrama, it's almost the opposite. That if Finder is about seeing the characters suffer, Castle Waiting is almost about the idea that it's not going to be suffering, and the almost not certainty of that, but like near certainty that the, these everything's going to be okay. Yeah. If one thing, if there's one thing about the fairy tale that it absolutely nails, I think it's the yeah. the emotional feel of the happy ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That this is going to the you catastrophe that just goes on forever. I mean, it's, it, it was interesting to me reading it, sort of thinking about the ways that it is or isn't subversive, that you're kind of just living inside the happy ending. Mm-hmm. Because that's the premise mm-hmm. of the series, too. You know, the happy ending has happened, yeah. where the princess runs off with the prince. And partly it seems like it's making a point of the fact that there are stories even after the happy ending. Right. But I mean, also just letting you live inside mm-hmm. the part that happens after the end of the story. It's very indulgent. And I almost found there was almost a syrupiness to the series in that sense. But it's still an intriguing idea that I, I did enjoy spending mm-hmm. time in this world. I'm not sure. Is it like a victory lap? Is that what this is? I guess so. That seems too negative. I mean, I, I want to give it more credit than that because it's not as though nothing happens, but mm-hmm. it's definitely part of the pleasure that it seemed to me was just you get to spend more time in this world and have a guarantee that nothing totally disastrous is going to happen. Right. Which mm-hmm. isn't a horrible thing. I mean, comics have a similar, or superhero comics have a similar thing, but it's the sense that nothing that's happy is going to last. No relationship is going to stick. Aggressive status quo. Yeah. That even, and that dulls the tragedies as well to an extent. That none of the pain is going to stick either. And as long as you go into that knowing that, it can be something that you can get pleasure out of. Now, as we always do, we're going to have our academic book review, which this month is going to be Andrew reviewing Farrah Mendelssohn's Rhetorics of Fantasy. Take it away, Andrew. Thank you. 
Rhetoric's a Fantasy by Farrah Mendelssohn was first published by Wesleyan University Press in 2008. Since then, it's garnered a great deal of traction within academic circles devoted to the study of fantasy. Essentially, Rhetoric's a Fantasy builds a new classification system for the fantasy genre, one that addresses one of the broader and more challenging issues for academics interested in studying fantasy as a genre. It's just too big. Fantasy as a term encompasses, usually ineffectively, an obnoxiously large volume of subgenres so distinctive that studying them as one genre is often futile and kind of pointless. J.K. Rowling and Robert E. Howard and Stephen King and E.L. James do have some intriguing points of intersection, but suggesting that they are part of the same genre is eyebrow-raising and possibly, quite frankly, lazy. Um, I've taught a course on fantasy before. I know Michael has as well. Uh, it's, it's insane trying to make a syllabus for a class on the concept of fantasy. So where previous systems of subdivision in the genre have relied upon either the volume of fantastic things or the intended audience, Mendelssohn builds her work around the manner in which fantasy is introduced to the world of the narrative. She suggests that there are four types of fantasy. Portal quest fantasy, in which a protagonist from our world travels through a literal or metaphorical portal to a fantasy world. Immersive fantasy, which unfolds in a wholly fantastic world that has no obvious intersections with our reality. Intrusive fantasy, in which a fantastic creature intrudes upon our reality. And liminal fantasy, in which the interstitial spaces between fantasy and reality are explored. Mendelssohn is careful to avoid hard and fast codifying. Her book opens with a, quote, health warning. This book is not intended to create rules. Its categories are not intended to fix anything in stone. This book is merely a portal into fantasy, a tour around the skeletons and exoskeletons of genre, end quote. And indeed, she is often demanding flexibility in our interpretation of these would-be subgenres. Once the category is established, Mendelssohn fleshes out the different patterns by which great fantasy authors build their plots, characters, and worlds in similar ways to other authors within these same subgenres. In doing so, she identifies a number of key tropes and structures that themselves speak to the validity of her classification system. It is also worth noting that a singular text need not fit exclusively in one category, and shifting from intrusion to liminal midway through a book, Harry Potter, is perfectly allowable. In terms of critiquing this book, I think she does literary criticism in the best possible way, by creating new lenses, soundly researched and exemplified, by which scholars can look at a text whilst acknowledging throughout that you can take it or leave it if you please. This is not a totalizing book that seeks to redefine the study of fantasy, but if you want it to be, yeah, okay, it can do that. For our purposes, Mendelssohn can give us means by which to make sense of the genre strategies employed in Castle Waiting, which has aspects of liminal fantasy, but is mostly immersive. And uh, Mendelssohn is especially useful in approaching the hard-to-approach world of Finder, which likewise oscillates between high fantasy immersion fantasy and boundary-spanning liminal fantasy. All in told, if you enjoy thinking about fantasy, you should read this book. It might fail to convince you, but it won't fail to spur new ideas. So I think that's just about it for us this episode, other than to do a thank you to Zach McDonald of St. Jerome's for helping us with our fabulous new equipment, which has made our sound quality ever so much better. So thank you so much, Zach. And to do, as we've gotten to the habit of doing, a few recommendations of things related to some of the stuff we talked about this week. Why don't we start with you, Michael? Uh, yeah, I'd like to recommend two works. Uh, first is the comic series Sleepless by Sarah Vaughn and Leela Del Dusa. And Sleepless is kind of a very fairy tale fantasy kingdom where these, where a princess is guarded over by a warrior who can never sleep. My second recommendation is a science fiction novel, Becky Chambers' uh, first book in her Wayfarer series, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, in that I think the way she tells that story is very similar to Finder and Castle Waiting, that there's a premise, but it's more about a series of adventures and the relationship between the characters. Awesome. Good, Rex. How about you, Andrew? Uh, I'm going to plug for The Palomar Stories by Gilbert Hernandez, since I've mentioned um, Love and Rockets before, and this originally appeared within that anthology. Um, these are magic realist tales set in a sort of um, very, very small, kind of tribalish uh, Mexican town. 
Uh, and I think it has a lot of really interesting intersections um, with Finder. I, I think if you like Finder, you'll probably really enjoy the Palomar stories. My recommendation is a little bit, I don't know, whatever, more mainstream, I guess. Um, I'm re- going to recommend Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning's Guardians of the Galaxy series that started in 2008. Um I really miss that take on the characters since we're doing the movie take on them now, which is a little bit different. Um, they've got some great female characters in that run and some great uh, space soap opera with uh, lots of sexy men and sexy thigh-high boots, which is always a draw for me. Um, and finally, finally, we just want to plug our next episode in which we are going to be discussing Tom King's Vision series in conversation with James Sturm and Guy Davis's Unstable Molecules, which is a revision of the Fantastic Four's origins. And we'll see you then.